Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Chapter 11 of The Man Who Was Thursday. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Zachary Brewster Geis, Greenbelt, Maryland, June 2007. The Man Who Was Thursday, A Nightmare, by G. K. Chesterton. Chapter 11. The Criminals Chase the Police. Syme put the field glasses from his eyes with an almost ghastly relief. "'The President is not with them anyhow,' he said, and wiped his forehead. "'But surely they are right away on the horizon,' said the bewildered Colonel, blinking, and but half recovered, from Bull's hasty though polite explanation. "'Could you possibly know your President among all these people?' "'Could I know a white elephant among all those people?' answered Syme somewhat irritably. As you very truly say, they are on the horizon, but if he were walking with them, by God, I believe this ground would shake. After an instant's pause, the new man called Ratcliffe said with gloomy decision, Of course the President isn't with them. I wish to Gemini he were. Much more likely the President is riding in triumph through Paris, or sitting on the ruins of St. Paul's Cathedral. This is absurd, said Syme. Something may have happened in our absence, but he cannot have carried the world with a rush like that. It is quite true, he added, frowning dubiously at the distant fields that lay towards the little station. It is certainly true that there seems to be a crowd coming this way, but they are not all the army that you make out. Oh, they, said the new detective contemptuously. No, they are not a very valuable force. But let me tell you frankly that they are precisely calculated to our value. We are not much, my boy, in Sunday's universe. He has got hold of all the cables and telegraphs himself. But to kill the Supreme Council, he regards as a trivial matter, like a postcard. It may be left to his private secretary. And he spat on the grass. Then he turned to the others and said somewhat austerely, There is a great deal to be said for death. But if anyone has any preference for the other alternative, I strongly advise him to walk after me. With these words, he turned his broad back and strode with silent energy towards the wood. The others gave one glance over their shoulders and saw that the dark cloud of men had detached itself from the station and was moving with a mysterious discipline across the plain. They saw already, even with the naked eye, black blots on the foremost faces which marked the masks they wore. They turned and followed their leader, who had already struck the wood, and disappeared among the twinkling trees. The sun on the grass was dry and hot, so in plunging into the wood they had a cool shock of shadow, as of divers who plunge into a dim pool. The inside of the wood was full of shattered sunlight and shaken shadows. They made a sort of shuddering veil, almost recalling the dizziness of a cinematograph. 
Even the solid figures walking with him Syme could hardly see for the patterns of sun and shade that danced upon them. Now a man's head was lit as with a light of Rembrandt, leaving all else obliterated. Now again he had strong and staring white hands with the face of a negro. The ex-marquis had pulled the old straw hat over his eyes, and the black shade of the brim cut his face so squarely in two that it seemed to be wearing one of the black half-masks of their pursuers. The fancy tinted Syme's overwhelming sense of wonder. Was he wearing a mask? Was anyone wearing a mask? Was anyone anything? This wood of witchery, in which men's faces turned black and white by turns, in which their figures first swelled into sunlight and then faded into formless night, this mere chaos of chiaroscuro, after the clear daylight outside, seemed to Syme a perfect symbol of the world in which he had been moving for three days, this world where men took off their beards and their spectacles and their noses and turned into other people. That tragic self-confidence which he had felt when he believed that the Marquis was a devil had strangely disappeared now that he knew that the Marquis was a friend. He felt almost inclined to ask, after all these bewilderments, what was a friend and what was an enemy. Was there anything that was apart from what it seemed? The Marquis had taken off his nose and turned out to be a detective. Might he not just as well take off his head and turn out to be a hobgoblin? Was not everything, after all, like this bewildering woodland, this dance of dark and light? Everything only a glimpse, the glimpse always unforeseen and always forgotten. For Gabriel Syme had found in the heart of that sun-splashed wood what many modern painters had found there. He had found the thing which the modern people call Impressionism, which is another name for that final skepticism which can find no floor to the universe. As a man in an evil dream strains himself to scream and wake, Syme strove with a sudden effort to fling off this last and worst of his fancies. With two impatient strides he overtook the man in the Marquis's straw hat, the man whom he had come to address as Ratcliffe. In a voice exaggeratively loud and cheerful, he broke the bottomless silence and made conversation. "'May I ask,' he said, "'where on earth we are all going to?' So genuine had been the doubts of his soul that he was quite glad to hear his companion speak in an easy human voice. "'We must get down through the town of Lancy to the sea,' he said. "'I think that part of the country is least likely to be with them.' "'What can you mean by all this?' cried Syme. "'They can't be running the real world in that way. Surely not many working men are anarchists, and surely if they were, mere mobs could not beat modern armies and police.' "'Mere mobs,' repeated his new friend with a snort of scorn. "'So you talk about mobs and the working classes as if they were the question. You've got that eternal idiotic idea that if anarchy came it would come from the poor. Why should it? The poor have been rebels, but they have never been anarchists. They have more interest than anyone else in there being some decent government. The poor man really has a stake in the country. The rich man hasn't. He can go away to New Guinea in a yacht.' The poor have sometimes objected to being governed badly. The rich have always objected to being governed at all. Aristocrats were always anarchists, as you can see from the barons' wars. "'As a lecture on English history for the little ones,' said Syme, "'this is all very nice, but I have not yet grasped its application.' "'Its application is,' said his informant, "'that most of old Sunday's right-hand men are South African and American millionaires.' 
That is why he has got hold of all the communications. And that is why the last four champions of the anti-anarchist police force are running through a wood like rabbits. Millionaires I can understand, said Syme thoughtfully. They are nearly all mad. But getting hold of a few wicked old gentlemen with hobbies is one thing. Getting hold of great Christian nations is another. I would bet the nose off my face—forgive the illusion—that Sunday would stand perfectly helpless before the task of converting any ordinary healthy person anywhere. Well, said the other, it rather depends what sort of person you mean. Well, for instance, said Syme, he could never convert that person, and he pointed straight in front of him. They had come to an open space of sunlight which seemed to express to Syme the final return of his own good sense, and in the middle of this forest clearing was a figure that might well stand for that common sense in an almost awful actuality. Burnt by the sun, and strained with perspiration, and grave with the bottomless gravity of small necessary toils, a heavy French peasant was cutting wood with a hatchet. His cart stood a few yards off, already half full of timber and the horse that cropped the grass was, like his master, valorous but not desperate. Like his master he was even prosperous, but yet was almost sad. The man was a Norman, taller than the average of the French, and very angular, and his swarthy figure stood dark against a square of sunlight, almost like some allegoric figure of labor frescoed on a ground of gold. Mr. Syme is saying, called out Ratcliffe to the French colonel, that this man at least will never be an anarchist. Mr. Syme is right enough there, answered Colonel Ducroix, laughing, if only for the reason that he has plenty of property to defend. Uh, but I forgot in your country you are not used to peasants being wealthy. He looks poor, said Dr. Bull doubtfully. Quite so, said the colonel. That is why he is rich. I have an idea called out Dr. Bull suddenly. How much would he take to give us a lift in his cart? Those dogs are all on foot, and we could soon leave them behind. Oh, give him anything, said Syme eagerly. I have piles of money on me. That will never do, said the colonel. He will never have any respect for you unless you drive a bargain. Oh, if he haggles, began Bull impatiently. He haggles because he is a free man, said the other. You do not understand— he would not see the meaning of generosity. He is not being tipped. And even while they seemed to hear the heavy feet of their strange pursuers behind them, they had to stand and stamp, while the French colonel talked to the French woodcutter, with all the leisurely badinage and bickering of market-day. At the end of the four minutes, however, they saw that the colonel was right, for the woodcutter entered into their plans not with the vague servility of a too-too-well-paid, but with the seriousness of a solicitor, who had been paid the proper fee. He told them that the best thing they could do was to make their way down to the little inn on the hills above Lancy, where the innkeeper, an old soldier who had become devout in his latter years, would be certain to sympathize with them, and even to take risks in their support. The whole company therefore piled themselves on top of the stacks of wood, and went rocking in the rude cart down the other and steeper side of the woodland. Heavy and ramshackle as was the vehicle, it was driven quickly enough, and they soon had the exhilarating impression of distancing altogether those, whoever they were, who were hunting them. For after all, the riddle as to where the anarchists had got all these followers was still unsolved. 
One man's presence had sufficed for them. They had fled at the first sight of the deformed smile of the secretary. Syme, every now and then, looked back over his shoulder at the army on their track. As the wood grew first thinner and then smaller with distance, he could see the sunlit slopes beyond it and above it, and across these was still moving the square black mob like one monstrous beetle. In the very strong sunlight, and with his own very strong eyes, which were almost telescopic, Syme could see this mass of men quite plainly. He could see them as separate human figures, but he was increasingly surprised by the way in which they moved as one man. They seemed to be dressed in dark clothes and plain hats, like any common crowd out of the streets, but they did not spread and sprawl and trail by various lines to the attack, as would be natural in an ordinary mob. They moved with a sort of dreadful and wicked woodenness, like a staring army of automatons. Syme pointed this out to Ratcliffe. "'Yes,' replied the policeman. "'That's discipline. That's Sunday. He is perhaps five hundred miles off, but the fear of him is on all of them like the finger of God. Yes, they are walking regularly, and you bet your boots that they are talking regularly, yes, and thinking regularly. But the one important thing for us is that they are disappearing regularly.' Syme nodded. It was true that the black patch of the pursuing men was growing smaller and smaller as the peasant belaboured his horse. The level of the sunlit landscape, though flat as a whole, fell away on the farther side of the wood in billows of heavy slope towards the sea, in a way not unlike the lower slopes of the Sussex Downs. The only difference was that in Sussex the road would have been broken and angular like a little brook, but here the white French road fell sheer in front of them like a waterfall. Down this direct descent the cart clattered at a considerable angle, and in a few minutes, the road growing yet steeper, they saw below them the little harbour of Lancy and a great blue arc of the sea. The travelling cloud of their enemies had wholly disappeared from the horizon. The horse and cart took a sharp turn round a clump of elms, and the horse's nose nearly struck the face of an old gentleman who was sitting on the benches outside the little café of Le Soleil d'Or. The peasant grunted an apology and got down from his seat. The others also descended one by one and spoke to the old gentleman with fragmentary phrases of courtesy, for it was quite evident from his expansive manner that he was the owner of the little tavern. He was a white-haired, apple-faced old boy, with sleepy eyes and a grey moustache, stout, sedentary, and very innocent, of a type that may often be found in France, but is still commoner in Catholic Germany. Everything about him, his pipe, his pot of beer, his flowers, and his beehive, suggested an ancestral peace. Only when his visitors looked up as they entered the inn-parlour, they saw the sword upon the wall. The colonel, who greeted the innkeeper as an old friend, passed rapidly into the inn-parlour, and sat down ordering some ritual refreshment. The military decision of his action interested Syme, who sat next to him, and he took the opportunity when the old innkeeper had gone out of satisfying his curiosity. "'May I ask you, Colonel,' he said in a low voice, "'why we have come here?' Colonel Ducroix smiled behind his bristly white moustache. "'For two reasons, sir,' he said, "'and I will give first not the most important, but the most utilitarian. "'We came here because this is the only place within twenty miles "'in which we can get horses.' "'Horses?' repeated Syme, looking up quickly. 
"'Yes,' replied the other. "'If you people are really to distance your enemies, it is horses or nothing for you, unless, of course, you have bicycles and motor-cars in your pocket.' "'And where do you advise us to make for?' asked Syme doubtfully. "'Beyond question,' replied the colonel, "'you had better make all haste to the police station beyond the town. My friend, whom I seconded under somewhat deceptive circumstances, seems to me to exaggerate very much the possibilities of a general rising. But even he would hardly maintain, I suppose, that you are not safe with the gendarme.' Syme nodded gravely. Then he said abruptly, "'And your other reason for coming here?' "'My other reason for coming here,' said Ducroix soberly, "'is that it is just as well to see a good man or two when one is possibly near to death.' Syme looked up at the wall and saw a crudely painted and pathetic religious picture. Then he said, "'You are right,' and then almost immediately afterwards, "'Has anyone seen about the horses?' "'Yes,' answered Ducroix. You may be quite certain that I gave orders the moment I came in. These enemies of yours gave no impression of hurry, but they were really moving wonderfully fast, like a well-trained army. I had no idea that the anarchists had so much discipline. You have not a moment to waste. Almost as he spoke, the old innkeeper with the blue eyes and white hair came ambling into the room, and announced that six horses were saddled outside. By Ducroix's advice, the five others equipped themselves with some portable form of food and wine, and keeping their dueling swords as the only weapons available, they clattered away down the steep white road. The two servants, who had carried the Marquis's luggage when he was a Marquis, were left behind to drink at the café by common consent, and not at all against their own inclination. By this time the afternoon sun was slanting westward and by its rays Syme could see the sturdy figure of the old innkeeper growing smaller and smaller, but still standing and looking after them quite silently, the sunshine in his silver hair. Syme had a fixed superstitious fancy left in his mind by the chance phrase of the colonel, that this was indeed perhaps the last honest stranger whom he should ever see upon the earth. He was still looking at this dwindling figure, which stood as a mere grey blot touched with a white flame against the great green wall of the steep down behind him. And as he stared over the top of the down behind the innkeeper, there appeared an army of black-clad and marching men. They seemed to hang above the good man and his house like a black cloud of locusts. The horses had been saddled none too soon. End of chapter 11《Chapter Twelve of the Man Who Was Thursday》This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Zachary Brewster Geis, Greenbelt, Maryland, June 2007. The Man Who Was Thursday A Nightmare by G. K. Chesterton. Chapter Twelve the earth in anarchy. Urging the horses to a gallop, without respect to the rather rugged descent of the road, the horsemen soon regained their advantage over the men on the march, and at last the bulk of the first buildings of Lancy cut off the sight of their pursuers. Nevertheless the ride had been a long one, and by the time they reached the real town the west was warming with the color and quality of sunset. 
the colonel suggested that, before making finally for the police station, they should make the effort in passing to attach to themselves one more individual who might be useful. Four out of the five rich men in this town, he said, are common swindlers. I suppose the proportion is pretty equal all over the world. The fifth is a friend of mine, and a very fine fellow, and what is even more important from our point of view, he owns a motor-car. I am afraid, said the professor in his mirthful way, looking back along the white road on which the black crawling patch might appear at any moment. I am afraid we have hardly time for afternoon calls. Dr. Renard's house is only three minutes off, said the colonel. Our danger, said Dr. Bull, is not two minutes off. Yes, said Syme. If we ride on fast, we must leave them behind, for they are on foot. He has a motor-car, said the colonel. But we may not get it, said Bull. Yes, he is quite on your side. But he might be out. Hold your tongue, said Syme suddenly. What is that noise? For a second they all sat as still as equestrian statues, and for a second, or two or three or four seconds, heaven and earth seemed equally still. Then all their ears, in an agony of attention, heard along the road that indescribable thrill and throb that means only one thing—horses. The colonel's face had an instantaneous change, as if lightning had struck it, and yet left it scatheless. "'They have done us,' he said, with brief military irony. "'Prepare to receive cavalry!' "'Where can they have got the horses?' asked Syme, as he mechanically urged his steed to a canter. The colonel was silent for a little, then he said in a strained voice, "'I was speaking with strict accuracy when I said that the Soleil d'Or was the only place where one could get horses within twenty miles.' "'No,' said Syme violently. "'I don't believe he'd do it. Not with all that white hair.' "'He may have been first,' said the colonel gently. "'They must be at least a hundred strong, for which reason we are all going to see my friend Renard, who has a motor-car.' With those words he swung his horse suddenly round a street corner, and went down the street with such thundering speed that the others, though already well at the gallop, had difficulty in following the flying tail of his horse. Dr. Renard inhabited a high and comfortable house at the top of a steep street, so that when the riders alighted at his door they could once more see the solid green ridge of the hill with the white road across it standing up above all the roofs of the town. They breathed again to see that the road as yet was clear, and they rang the bell. Dr. Renard was a breaming, brown-bearded man, a good example of that silent but very busy professional class which France has preserved even more perfectly than England. When the matter was explained to him he pooh-poohed the panic of the ex-marquis altogether, he said with the solid French scepticism that there was no conceivable probability of a general anarchist rising. "'Anarchy,' he said, shrugging his shoulders. "'It is childishness!' "'Et ça!' cried out the colonel suddenly, pointing over the other's shoulder. "'And that is childishness, isn't it?' They all looked round and saw a curve of black cavalry come sweeping over the top of the hill with all the energy of Attila. Swiftly as they rode, however, the whole rank still kept well together, and they could see the black visards of the first line as level as a line of uniforms. But although the main black square was the same, though travelling faster, 
there was now one sensational difference which they could see clearly upon the slope of the hill, as if upon a slanted map. The bulk of the riders were in one block, but one rider flew far ahead of the column, and with frantic movements of hand and heel urged his horse faster and faster, so that one might have fancied that he was not the pursuer but the pursued. But even at that great distance they could see something so fanatical, so unquestionable in his figure, that they knew it was the secretary himself. "'I am sorry to cut short a cultured discussion,' said the colonel. "'But can you lend me your motor-car now in two minutes?' "'I have a suspicion that you are all mad,' said Dr. Renard, smiling sociably. "'But God forbid that madness should in any way interrupt friendship. Let us go round to the garage.' Dr. Renard was a mild man, with monstrous wealth. His rooms were like the Musée de Cluny, and he had three motor-cars. These, however, he seemed to use very sparingly, having the simple tastes of the French middle class, and when his impatient friends came to examine them, it took them some time to assure themselves that one of them even could be made to work. This with some difficulty they brought round into the street before the doctor's house. When they came out of the dim garage, they were startled to find that twilight had already fallen with the abruptness of night in the tropics. Either they had been longer in the place than they imagined, or some unusual canopy of cloud had gathered over the town. They looked down the steep streets, and seemed to see a slight mist coming up from the sea. "'It is now or never,' said Dr. Bull. "'I hear horses.' "'No,' corrected the professor. "'A horse.' And as they listened, it was evident that the noise, rapidly coming nearer on the rattling stones, was not the noise of the whole cavalcade, but that of the one horseman who had left it far behind, the insane secretary. Syme's family, like most of those who end in the simple life, had once owned a motor, and he knew all about them. He had leapt at once into the chauffeur's seat, and with flushed face was wrenching and tugging at the disused machinery. He bent his strength upon one handle, and then said quite quietly, "'I am afraid it's no go.' As he spoke, there swept round the corner a man rigid on his rushing horse, with the rush and rigidity of an arrow. He had a smile that thrust out his chin as if it were dislocated. He swept alongside of the stationary car into which his company had crowded, and laid his hand on the front. It was the secretary, and his mouth went quite straight in the solemnity of triumph. Syme was leaning hard upon the steering wheel, and there was no sound but the rumble of the other pursuers riding into the town. Then there came quite suddenly a scream of scraping iron, and the car leapt forward. It plucked the secretary clean out of his saddle, as a knife is whipped out of its sheath, trailed him kicking terribly for twenty yards, and left him flung flat upon the road far in front of his frightened horse. As the car took the corner of the street with a splendid curve, they could just see the other anarchists filling the street and raising their fallen leader. "'I can't understand why it has grown so dark.' said the professor at last in a low voice. "'Going to be a storm, I think,' said Dr. Bull. "'I say, it's a pity we haven't got a light on this car, if only to see by.' "'We have,' said the colonel, and from the floor of the car he fished up a heavy, old-fashioned, carved iron lantern with a light inside it. It was obviously an antique, and it would seem as if its original use had been in some way semi-religious, for there was a rude moulding of a cross upon one of its sides." "'Where on earth did you get that?' asked the professor. "'I got it where I got the car,' answered the colonel, chuckling. "'From my best friend. While our friend here was fighting with his steering wheel, 
I ran up the front steps of the house and spoke to Renard, who was standing in his own porch, you will remember. I suppose, I said, there's no time to get a lamp. He looked up, blinking amiably at the beautiful arched ceiling of his own front hall. From this was suspended, by chains of exquisite ironwork, this lantern, one of the hundred treasures of his treasure house. By sheer force, he tore the lamp out of his own ceiling, shattering the painted panels and bringing down two blue vases with his violence. Then he handed me the iron lantern, and I put it in the car. Was I not right when I said that Dr. Renard was worth knowing? You were, said Syme seriously, and hung the heavy lantern over the front. There was a certain allegory of their whole position in the contrast between the modern automobile and its strange ecclesiastical lamp. Hitherto they had passed through the quietest part of the town, meeting at once one or two pedestrians who could give them no hint of the peace or the hostility of the place. Now, however, the windows in the houses began one by one to be lit up, giving a greater sense of habitation and humanity. Dr. Bull turned to the new detective who had led their flight, and permitted himself one of his natural and friendly smiles. "'These lights make one feel more cheerful,' Inspector Ratcliffe drew his brows together. "'There is only one set of lights that make me more cheerful,' he said, "'and they are those lights of the police station which I can see beyond the town.' Please, God, we may be there in ten minutes. Then all Bull's boiling good sense and optimism broke suddenly out of him. Oh, this is all raving nonsense, he cried. If you really think that ordinary people in ordinary houses are anarchists, you must be madder than an anarchist yourself. If we turned and fought these fellows, the whole town would fight for us. No, said the other, with an immovable simplicity. The whole town would fight for them. We shall see. While they were speaking, the professor had leaned forward with sudden excitement. "'What is that noise?' he said. "'Oh, the horse is behind us, I suppose,' said the colonel. "'I thought we had got clear of them.' "'The horse is behind us? No,' said the professor. "'It is not horses, and it is not behind us.' Almost as he spoke, across the end of the street before them, two shining and rattling shapes shot past. They were gone almost in a flash, but everyone could see that they were motor-cars, and the professor stood up with a pale face and swore that they were the other two motor-cars from Dr. Reynal's garage. "'I tell you they were his,' he repeated with wild eyes, "'and they were full of men in masks!' "'Absurd,' said the colonel angrily. "'Dr. Reynal would never give them his cows.' "'He may have been forced,' said Ratcliffe quietly. "'The whole town is on their side.' "'You still believe that?' asked the colonel incredulously. "'You will all believe it soon,' said the other, with a hopeless calm. There was a puzzled pause for some little time, and then the colonel began again abruptly. "'No, I can't believe it. The thing is nonsense. The plain people of a peaceable French town—' He was cut short by a bang and a blaze of light which seemed close to his eyes. As the car sped on, it left a floating patch of white smoke behind it and Syme had heard a shot shriek past his ear. "'My God!' said the colonel. "'Someone has shot at us!' "'It need not interrupt conversation,' said the gloomy Ratcliffe. "'Pray resume your remarks, colonel. You were talking, I think, about the plain people of a peaceable French town.' The staring colonel was long past minding satire. He rolled his eyes all round the street. "'It is extraordinary,' he said. 
most extraordinary. A fastidious person, said Syme, might even call it unpleasant. However, I suppose those lights out in the field beyond this street are the gendarmerie. We shall soon get there. No, said Inspector Ratcliffe, we shall never get there. He had been standing up and looking keenly ahead of him. Now he sat down and smoothed his sleek hair with a weary gesture. "'What do you mean?' asked Bull sharply. "'I mean that we shall never get there,' said the pessimist placidly. "'They have two rows of armed men across the road already. I can see them from here. The town is in arms, as I said it was. I can only wallow in the exquisite comfort of my own exactitude.' And Ratcliffe sat down comfortably in the car and lit a cigarette, but the others rose excitedly and stared down the road. Syme had slowed down the car as their plans became doubtful, and he brought it finally to a standstill, just at the corner of a side street that ran down very steeply to the sea. The town was mostly in shadow, but the sun had not sunk. Wherever its level light could break through, it painted everything a burning gold. Up this side street, the last sunset light shone as sharp and narrow as the shaft of artificial light at the theater. It struck the car of the five friends and lit it like a burning chariot, but the rest of the street, especially the two ends of it, was in the deepest twilight, and for some seconds they could see nothing. Then Syme, whose eyes were the keenest, broke into a little bitter whistle and said, "'It is quite true. There is a crowd or an army or some such thing across the end of that street.' "'Well, if there is,' said Bull impatiently, "'it must be something else, a sham fight or the mayor's birthday or something.' I cannot and will not believe that plain jolly people in a place like this walk about with dynamite in their pockets. Get on a bit, Syme, and let us look at them. The car crawled about a hundred yards farther, and then they were all startled by Dr. Bull breaking into a high crow of laughter. Why, you silly mugs, he cried. What did I tell you? That crowd's as law-abiding as a cow, and if it weren't, it's on our side. How do you know? asked the professor, staring. You blind bat, cried Bull. Don't you see who is leading them? They peered again, and then the colonel, with a catch in his voice, cried out, Why, it's Renard! There was indeed a rank of dim figures running across the road, and they could not be clearly seen. But far enough in front to catch the accident of the evening light was stalking up and down the unmistakable Dr. Renard, in a white hat, stroking his long brown beard, and holding a revolver in his left hand. "'What a fool I've been!' exclaimed the colonel. "'Of course, the dear old boy has turned out to help us.' Dr. Bull was bubbling over with laughter, swinging the sword in his hand as carelessly as a cane. He jumped out of the car and ran across the intervening space, calling out, "'Dr. Renard! Dr. Renard!' An instant after, Syme thought his own eyes had gone mad in his head, for the philanthropic Dr. Renard had deliberately raised his revolver and fired twice at Bull, so that the shots rang down the road." Almost at the same second as the puff of white cloud went up from this atrocious explosion, a long puff of white cloud went up also from the cigarette of the cynical Ratcliffe. Like all the rest, he turned a little pale, but he smiled. Dr. Bull, at whom the bullets had been fired, just missing his scalp, stood quite still in the middle of the road without a sign of fear, and then turned very slowly and crawled back to his car and climbed in with two holes through his hat. "'Well,' said the cigarette smoker slowly, "'what do you think now?' "'I think,' said Dr. Bull with precision, "'that I am lying in bed at number 217 Peabody Buildings, "'and that I shall soon wake up with a jump. "'Or if that's not it, "'I think that I am sitting in a small cushioned cell in Hanwell, "'and that the doctor can't make much of my case. 
but if you want to know what I don't think, I'll tell you. I don't think what you think. I don't think, and I never shall think, that the mass of ordinary men are a pack of dirty modern thinkers. No, sir, I'm a Democrat, and I still don't believe that Sunday could convert one average navvy or counterjumper. No, I may be mad, but humanity isn't. Syme turned his bright blue eyes on Bull with an earnestness which he did not commonly make clear. "'You are a very fine fellow,' he said. "'You can believe in sanity which is not merely your sanity, and you're right enough about humanity, about peasants and people like that jolly old innkeeper. But you're not right about Renal. I suspected him from the first. He's rationalistic, and what's worse, he's rich. When duty and religion are really destroyed, it will be by the rich.' "'They are really destroyed now,' said the man with the cigarette, and rose with his hands in his pockets. "'The devils are coming on!' The men in the motor-car looked anxiously in the direction of his dreamy gaze, and they saw that the whole regiment at the end of the road was advancing upon them, Dr. Renard marching furiously in front, his beard flying in the breeze. The colonel sprang out of the car with an intolerant exclamation. "'Gentlemen,' he cried, "'the thing is incredible!' It must be a practical joke. If you knew Reynard as I do, it's like calling Queen Victoria a dynamiter. If you had got the man's character into your head— Dr. Bull, said Syme sardonically, has at least got it into his hat. I tell you it can't be, cried the colonel, stamping. Reynard shall explain it. He shall explain it to me. And he strode forward. Don't be in such a hurry, drawled the smoker. He will very soon explain it to all of us but the impatient colonel was already out of earshot, advancing towards the advancing enemy. The excited Dr. Reynard lifted his pistol again, but perceiving his opponent hesitated, and the colonel came face to face with him, with frantic gestures of remonstrance. "'It is no good,' said Syme. "'He will never get anything out of that old heathen. I vote we drive bang through the thick of them, bang as the bullets went through Bull's hat. We may all be killed, but we must kill a tidy number of them.' "'I won't have it!' said Dr. Bull, growing more vulgar in the sincerity of his virtue. The poor chaps may be making a mistake. Give the colonel a chance. Shall we go back, then? asked the professor. No, said Ratcliffe in a cold voice. The street behind us is held, too. In fact, I seem to see there another friend of yours, Syme. Syme spun round smartly and stared backwards at the track which they had travelled. He saw an irregular body of horsemen gathering and galloping towards them in the gloom. He saw above the foremost saddle the silver gleam of a sword, and then, as it grew nearer, the silver gleam of an old man's hair. The next moment, with shattering violence, he had swung the motor round and sent it dashing down the steep side street to the sea, like a man that desired only to die. "'What the devil is up?' cried the professor, seizing his arm. "'The morning star has fallen,' said Syme, as his own car went down in the darkness like a falling star. The others did not understand his words, but when they looked back at the street above, they saw the hostile cavalry coming round the corner and down the slopes after them, and foremost of all rode the good innkeeper, flushed with the fiery innocence of the evening light. "'The world is insane,' said the professor, and buried his face in his hands. "'No,' said Dr. Bull, in adamantine humility, "'it is I.' "'What are we going to do?' asked the professor. At this moment, said Syme, with a scientific detachment, I think we are going to smash into a lamp-post. The next instant the automobile had come with a catastrophic jar against an iron object. 
The instant after that, four men had crawled out from under a chaos of metal, and a tall, lean lamp-post that had stood up straight on the edge of the marine parade stood out, bent and twisted, like the branch of a broken tree. "'Well, we smashed something,' said the professor with a faint smile. "'That's some comfort.' "'You're becoming an anarchist,' said Syme, dusting his clothes with his instinct of daintiness. "'Everyone is,' said Ratcliffe. As they spoke, the white-haired horseman and his followers came thundering from above, and almost at the same moment a dark string of men ran shouting along the seafront. Syme snatched a sword and took it in his teeth. He stuck two others under his armpits, took a fourth in his left hand and the lantern in his right, and leapt off the high parade onto the beach below. The others leapt after him with a common acceptance of such decisive action, leaving the debris and the gathering mob above them. "'We have one more chance,' said Syme, taking the steel out of his mouth. "'Whatever all this pandemonium means, I suppose the police station will help us. We can't get there, for they hold the way. But there's a pier or breakwater runs out into the sea just here, which we could defend longer than anything else, like Horatius and his bridge.' We must defend it till the gendarmerie turn out. Keep after me. They followed him as he went crunching down the beach, and in a second or two their boots broke not on the sea gravel, but on broad flat stones. They marched down a long low jetty, running out in one arm into the dim boiling sea, and when they came to the end of it, they felt that they had come to the end of their story. They turned and faced the town. That town was transfigured with uproar. All along the high parade from which they had just ascended was a dark and roaring stream of humanity, with tossing arms and fiery faces groping and glaring towards them. The long dark line was dotted with torches and lanterns, but even where no flame lit up a furious face, they could see in the farthest figure, in the most shadowy gesture, an organized hate. It was clear that they were the accursed of all men, and they knew not why. Two or three men looking little and black like monkeys leapt over the edge as they had done, and dropped onto the beach. These came ploughing down the deep sand, shouting horribly, and strove to wade into the sea at random. The example was followed, and the whole black mass of men began to run and drip over the edge like black treacle. Foremost among the men on the beach, Syme saw the peasant who had driven their cart. He splashed into the surf on a huge cart-horse, and shook his axe at them. "'The peasant!' cried Syme. "'They have not risen since the Middle Ages!' "'Even if the police do come now,' said the professor mournfully, "'they can do nothing with this mob.' "'Nonsense!' said Bull desperately. "'There must be some people left in the town who are human.' "'No,' said the hopeless inspector. "'The human being will soon be extinct. "'We are the last of mankind.' "'It may be,' said the professor absently. "'Then he added in his dreamy voice, "'What is all that at the end of the Duncade? "'Nor public flame, nor private.' dares to shine, nor human light is left, nor glimpse divine. Lo, thy dread empire, chaos is restored. Light dies before thine uncreating word. Thy hand, great Anach, lets the curtain fall, and universal darkness buries all. Stop! cried Bull suddenly. The gendarmes are out! The low lights of the police station were indeed blotted and broken with hurrying figures, and they heard through the darkness the clash and jingle of a disciplined cavalry. "'They are charging the mob!' cried Bull, in ecstasy or alarm. "'No,' said Syme. "'They are formed along the parade.' "'They have unslung their carbines!' cried Bull, dancing with excitement. "'Yes,' said Ratcliffe, "'and they are going to fire on us.' As he spoke there came a long crackle of musketry, and bullets seemed to hop like hailstones on the stones in front of them. 
"'The gendarmes have joined them!' cried the professor, and struck his forehead. "'I am in the padded cell,' said Bull solidly. There was a long silence, and then Ratcliffe said, looking out over the swollen sea, all a sort of grey-purple, "'What does it matter, who is mad or who is sane? We shall all be dead soon.' Syme turned to him and said, "'You are quite hopeless, then?' Mr. Ratcliffe kept a stony silence, then at last he said quietly, "'No. Oddly enough, I am not quite hopeless. There is one insane little hope that I cannot get out of my mind.' The power of this whole planet is against us, yet I cannot help wondering whether this one silly little hope is hopeless yet. "'In what or whom is your hope?' asked Syme with curiosity. "'In a man I never saw,' said the other, looking at the leaden sea. "'I know what you mean,' said Syme in a low voice. "'The man in the dark room. But Sunday must have killed him by now.' "'Perhaps,' said the other steadily. "'But if so—' He was the only man whom Sunday found it hard to kill. "'I heard what you said,' said the professor, with his back turned. "'I also am holding hard on to the thing I never saw.' All of a sudden Syme, who was standing as if blind with introspective thought, swung round and cried out like a man waking from sleep, "'Where is the colonel? I thought he was with us.' "'The colonel? Yes,' cried Bull. "'Where on earth is the colonel?' "'He went to speak to Renard,' said the professor. "'We cannot leave him among all those beasts,' cried Syme. "'Let us die like gentlemen if—' "'Do not pity the colonel,' said Ratcliffe, with a pale sneer. "'He is extremely comfortable. He is—' "'No, no, no!' cried Syme in a kind of frenzy. "'Not the colonel, too! I will never believe it!' "'Will you believe your eyes?' asked the other, and pointed to the beach. Many of the pursuers had waded into the water, shaking their fists, but the sea was rough, and they could not reach the pier. Two or three figures, however, stood on the beginning of the stone footway and seemed to be cautiously advancing down it. The glare of a chance lantern lit up the faces of the two foremost. One face wore a black half-mask, and under it the mouth was twisting about in such a madness of nerves that the black tuft of beard wriggled round and round like a restless living thing. The other was the red face and white moustache of Colonel Ducroix. They were in earnest consultation. "'Yes, he is gone, too,' said the professor, and sat down on a stone. "'Everything's gone. I'm gone. I can't trust my own bodily machinery. I feel as if my own hand might fly up and strike me.' "'When my hand flies up,' said Syme, "'it will strike somebody else.' And he strode along the pier towards the colonel, the sword in one hand and the lantern in the other. As if to destroy the last hope or doubt, the colonel, who saw him coming, pointed his revolver at him and fired. The shot missed Syme, but struck his sword, breaking it short at the hilt. Syme rushed on and swung the iron lantern above his head. "'Judas before Herod!' he said, and struck the colonel down upon the stones. Then he turned to the secretary, whose frightful mouth was almost foaming now, and held the lamp high with so rigid and arresting a gesture that the man was, as it were, frozen for a moment and forced to hear. "'Do you see this lantern?' cried Syme in a terrible voice. Do you see the cross carved on it and the flame inside? You did not make it. You did not light it. Better men than you, men who could believe and obey, twisted the entrails of iron and preserved the legend of fire. There is not a street you walk on, there is not a thread you wear, that was not made as this lantern was, by denying your philosophy of dirt and rats. 
You can make nothing. You can only destroy. You will destroy mankind. You will destroy the world. Let that suffice you. Yet this one old Christian lantern you shall not destroy. It shall go where your empire of apes will never have the wit to find it. He struck the secretary once with the lantern so that he staggered, and then whirling it twice round his head, sent it flying far out into sea, where it flared like a roaring rocket, and fell. "'Swords!' shouted Syme, turning his flaming face to the three behind him. "'Let us charge these dogs, for our time has come to die!' His three companions came after him, sword in hand. Syme's sword was broken, but he rent a bludgeon from the fist of a fisherman, flinging him down. In a moment they would have flung themselves upon the face of the mob and perished, when an interruption came. The secretary, ever since Syme's speech, had stood with his hand to his stricken head as if dazed. Now he suddenly pulled off his black mask. The pale face thus peeled in the lamplight revealed not so much rage as astonishment. He put up his hand with an anxious authority. "'There is some mistake,' he said. "'Mr. Syme, I hardly think you understand your position. I arrest you in the name of the law.' "'Of the law?' said Syme, and dropped his stick. "'Certainly,' said the secretary. "'I am a detective from Scotland Yard.' And he took a small blue card from his pocket. "'And what do you suppose we are?' asked the professor, and threw up his arms. "'You,' said the secretary stiffly, "'are, as I know for a fact, members of the Supreme Anarchist Council. Disguised as one of you, I—' Dr. Bull tossed his sword into the sea. "'There never was any Supreme Anarchist Council,' he said. "'We were all a lot of silly policemen looking at each other, and all these nice people who have been peppering us with shot thought we were the dynamiters.' I knew I couldn't be wrong about the mob, he said, beaming over the enormous multitude, which stretched away to the distance on both sides. Vulgar people are never mad. I'm vulgar myself, and I know. I am now going on shore to stand a drink to everybody here. End of chapter 12「Chapter 13 of The Man Who Is Thursday」this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org reading by zachary brewster geis greenbelt maryland june 2007 the man who was thursday a nightmare by g k chesterton chapter 13 the pursuit of the president Next morning five bewildered but hilarious people took the boat for Dover. The poor old colonel might have had some cause to complain, having been first forced to fight for two factions that didn't exist, and then knocked down with an iron lantern. But he was a magnanimous old gentleman, and being much relieved that neither party had anything to do with dynamite, he saw them off on the pier with great geniality. The five reconciled detectives had a hundred details to explain to each other. The secretary had to tell Syme how they had come to wear masks originally in order to approach the supposed enemy as fellow conspirators. Syme had to explain how they had fled with such swiftness through a civilized country. But above all these matters of detail which could be explained rose the central mountain of the matter that they could not explain. What did it all mean? If they were all harmless officers, what was Sunday? If he had not seized the world, what on earth had he been up to? Inspector Ratcliffe was still gloomy about this. "'I can't make head a tale of old Sunday's little game any more than you can,' he said. "'But whatever else Sunday is, he isn't a blameless citizen. 
damn it, do you remember his face? I grant you, answered Syme, that I have never been able to forget it. Well, said the secretary, I suppose we can find out soon, for tomorrow we have our next general meeting. You will excuse me, he said, with a rather ghastly smile, for being well acquainted with my secretarial duties. I suppose you are right, said the professor reflectively. I suppose we might find it out from him. But I confess that I should feel a bit afraid of asking Sunday who he really is. Why? asked the secretary. For fear of bombs? No, said the professor. For fear he might tell me. Let us have some drinks, said Dr. Bull, after a silence. Throughout their whole journey by boat and train they were highly convival, but they instinctively kept together. Dr. Bull, who had always been the optimist of the party, endeavored to persuade the other four that the whole company could take the same handsome cab from Victoria, but this was overruled, and they went in a four-wheeler with Dr. Bull on the box, singing. They finished their journey at a hotel in Piccadilly Circus, so as to be close to the early breakfast next morning in Leicester Square. Yet even then the adventures of the day were not entirely over. Dr. Bull, discontented with the general proposal to go to bed, had strolled out of the hotel at about eleven to see and taste some of the beauties of London. Twenty minutes afterwards he came back and made quite a clamour in the hall. Syme, who tried at first to soothe him, was forced at last to listen to his communication with quite new attention. "'I tell you I've seen him!' said Dr. Bull with thick emphasis. "'Whom?' asked Syme quickly. "'Not the President?' "'Not so bad as that,' said Dr. Bull, with unnecessary laughter. "'Not so bad as that. I've got him here.' "'Got whom here?' asked Syme impatiently. "'Harry Man,' said the other lucidly. "'Man that used to be Harry Man. Gogol. Here he is.' And he pulled forward by a reluctant elbow the identical young man who five days before had marched out of the council with thin red hair and a pale face, the first of all the sham anarchists who had been exposed." "'Why do you worry with me?' he cried. "'You have expelled me as a spy.' "'We are all spies,' whispered Syme. "'We're all spies!' shouted Dr. Bull. "'Come and have a drink!' Next morning the battalion of the reunited six marched stolidly towards the hotel in Leicester Square. "'This is more cheerful,' said Dr. Bull. "'We are six men, going to ask one man what he means.' "'I think it is a bit queerer than that,' said Syme. "'I think it is six men going to ask one man what they mean.' They turned in silence into the square, and though the hotel was in the opposite corner, they saw at once the little balcony and a figure that looked too big for it. He was sitting alone with bent head, poring over a newspaper. But all his counsellors, who had come to vote him down, crossed that square as if they were watched out of heaven by a hundred eyes. They had disputed much upon their policy, about whether they should leave the unmasked Gogol without and begin diplomatically, or whether they should bring him in and blow up the gunpowder at once. The influence of Simon Bull prevailed for the latter course, though the secretary to the last asked them why they attacked Sunday so rashly. "'My reason is quite simple,' said Syme. "'I attack him rashly, because I am afraid of him.' They followed Syme up the dark stair in silence and they all came out simultaneously into the broad sunlight of the morning and the broad sunlight of Sunday's smile. "'Delightful,' he said. "'So pleased to see you all. What an exquisite day it is. Is the Tsar dead?' The secretary, who happened to be foremost, drew himself together for a dignified outburst. "'No, sir,' he said sternly. "'There has been no massacre.' 
I bring you news of no such disgusting spectacles.' "'Disgusting spectacles?' repeated the President, with a bright, inquiring smile. "'You mean Dr. Bull's spectacles?' The secretary choked for a moment, and the president went on with a sort of smooth appeal. "'Of course, we all have our opinions, and even our eyes, but really to call them disgusting, before the man himself.' Dr. Bull tore off his spectacles and broke them on the table. "'My spectacles are blaggardly,' he said, "'but I'm not. Look at my face!' "'I dare say it's the sort of face that grows on one,' said the President. "'In fact, it grows on you. "'And who am I to quarrel with the wild fruits upon the tree of life? "'I dare say it will grow on me some day.' "'We have no time for tomfoolery,' said the Secretary, breaking in savagely. "'We have come to know what all this means. "'Who are you? What are you? Why did you get us all here? "'Do you know who and what we are? "'Are you a half-witted man playing the conspirator, "'or are you a clever man playing the fool? "'Answer me, I tell you!' "'Candidates,' murmured Sunday, "'are only required to answer eight out of the seventeen questions on the paper. "'As far as I can make out, you want me to tell you what I am and what you are "'and what this table is, and what the council is, and what this world is, for all I know. "'Well, I will go so far as to rend the veil of one mystery. "'If you want to know what you are, you are a set of highly well-intentioned young jackasses.' "'And you,' said Syme, leaning forward, "'what are you?' "'I?' "'What am I?' roared the President, and he rose slowly to an incredible height, like some enormous wave about to arch above them and break. "'You want to know what I am, do you? Bull, you are a man of science. Grub in the roots of those trees and find out the truth about them. Syme, you are a poet. Stare at those morning clouds. But I tell you this, that you will have found out the truth of the last tree and the topmost clouds before the truth about me.' You will understand the sea, and I shall still be a riddle. You shall know what the stars are, and not know what I am. Since the beginning of the world, all men have hunted me like a wolf. Kings and sages, and poets and lawgivers, all the churches, and all the philosophies. But I have never been caught yet, and the skies will fall in the time I turn to bay. I have given them a good run for their money, and I will now." Before one of them could move, the monstrous man had swung himself like some huge orangutan over the balustrade of the balcony. Yet before he dropped, he pulled himself up again as on a horizontal bar, and thrusting his great chin over the edge of the balcony, said solemnly, "'There's one thing I'll tell you, though, about who I am. I am the man in the dark room who made you all policemen.' With that, he fell from the balcony, bouncing on the stones below like a great ball of india-rubber, and went bounding off towards the corner of the Alhambra, where he hailed a handsome cab and sprang inside it. The six detectives had been standing thunderstruck and livid in the light of his last assertion, but when he disappeared into the cab, Syme's practical senses returned to him, and leaping over the balcony so recklessly as almost to break his legs, he called another cab. He and Bull sprang into the cab together, the professor and the inspector into another, while the secretary and the late Gogol scrambled into a third just in time to pursue the flying Syme, who was pursuing the flying president. Sunday led them a wild chase towards the northwest, his cabman, evidently under the influence of more than common inducements, urging the horse at breakneck speed. But Syme was in no mood for delicacies, and he stood up in his own cab shouting, "'Stop, thief!' until crowds ran along beside his cab, and policemen began to stop and ask questions. All this had its influence upon the President's cabman, who began to look dubious and to slow down to a trot. 
He opened the trap to talk reasonably to his fare, and in so doing let the long whip droop over the front of the cab. Sunday leant forward, seized it, and jerked it violently out of the man's hand. Then, standing up in front of the cab himself, he lashed the horse and roared aloud so that they went down the streets like a flying storm. Through street after street and square after square went whirling this preposterous vehicle in which the fare was urging the horse and the driver trying desperately to stop it. The other three cabs came after it, if the phrase be permissible of a cab, like panting hounds. Shops and streets shot by like rattling arrows. At the highest ecstasy of speed, Sunday turned round on the splashboard where he stood, and sticking his great grinning head out of the cab, with white hair whistling in the wind, he made a horrible face at his pursuers, like some colossal urchin. Then raising his right hand swiftly, he flung a ball of paper in Syme's face and vanished. Syme caught the thing while instinctively warding it off, and discovered that it consisted of two crumpled papers. One was addressed to himself, and the other to Dr. Bull, with a very long, and it is, to be feared, partly ironical, string of letters after his name. Dr. Bull's address was, at any rate, considerably longer than his communication, for the communication consisted entirely of the words, "'What about Martin Tupper now?' "'What does the old maniac mean?' asked Bull, staring at the words. "'What does yours say, Syme?' Syme's message was, at any rate, longer, and ran as follows. "'No one would regret anything in the nature of an interference by the archdeacon more than I. I trust it will not come to that. But for the last time, where are your galoshes? The thing is too bad, especially after what Uncle said.' The President's cabman seemed to be regaining some control over his horse, and the pursuers gained little as they swept round into the Edgewell Road. And here there occurred what seemed to the Allies a providential stoppage. Traffic of every kind was swerving to right or left or stopping, for down the long road was coming the unmistakable roar announcing the fire engine, which in a few seconds went by like a brazen thunderbolt. But quick as it went by, Sunday had bounded out of his cab, sprung at the fire engine, caught it, slung himself onto it, and was seen as he disappeared in the noisy distance, talking to the astonished fireman with explanatory gestures. "'After him!' howled Syme. "'He can't go astray now. There's no mistaking a fire engine!' The three cabmen, who had been stunned for a moment, whipped up their horses and slightly decreased the distance between themselves and their disappearing prey. The President acknowledged this proximity by coming to the back of the car, bowing repeatedly, kissing his hand, and finally flinging a neatly folded note into the bosom of Inspector Ratcliffe. When that gentleman opened it, not without impatience, he found it contained the words, "'Fly at once. The truth about your trouser-stretchers is known. A friend.' The fire-engine had struck still farther to the north, into a region that they did not recognize. And as it ran by a line of high railings shadowed with trees, the six friends were startled, but somewhat relieved, to see the President leap from the fire-engine, though whether through another whim or the increasing protest of his entertainers they could not see. Before the three cabs, however, could reach up to the spot, he had gone up the high railings like a huge grey cat, tossed himself over, and vanished in a darkness of leaves. Syme, with a furious gesture, stopped his cab, jumped out, and sprang also to the escalade. When he had one leg over the fence, and his friends were following, he turned a face on them which shone quite pale in the shadow. "'What place can this be?' he asked. "'Can it be the old devil's house? I've heard he has a house in North London.' "'All the better,' said the secretary grimly, planting a foot in a foothold. "'We shall find him at home.' "'No, but it isn't that,' said Syme, knitting his brows. "'I hear the most horrible noises, like devils laughing and sneezing and blowing their devilish noses.' "'His dog's barking, of course,' said the secretary. 
"'Why not say his blackbeetles barking?' said Syme furiously. "'Snails barking! Geraniums barking! Did you ever hear a dog bark like that?' He held up his hand, and there came out of the thicket a long growling roar that seemed to get under the skin and freeze the flesh, a low thrilling roar that made a throbbing in the air all about them. "'The dogs of Sunday would be no ordinary dogs,' said Gogol, and shuddered. Syme had jumped down on the other side, but he still stood listening impatiently. "'Well, listen to that,' he said. "'Is that a dog? Anybody's dog?' There broke upon their ear a hoarse screaming as of things protesting and clamoring in sudden pain, and then far off like an echo what sounded like a long nasal trumpet. "'Well, his house ought to be hell,' said the secretary. "'And if it is hell, I'm going in.' And he sprang over the tall railings almost with one swing. The others followed. They broke through a tangle of plants and shrubs, and came out on an open path. Nothing was in sight, but Dr. Bull suddenly struck his hands together. "'Why, you asses!' he cried. "'It's the zoo!' As they were looking round wildly for any trace of their wild quarry, a keeper in uniform came running along the path with a man in plain clothes. "'Has it come this way?' gasped the keeper. "'Has what?' asked Syme. "'The elephant!' cried the keeper. An elephant has gone mad and run away. He has run away with an old gentleman, said the other stranger breathlessly. A poor old gentleman with white hair. What sort of old gentleman? asked Syme with great curiosity. A very large and fat old gentleman in light grey clothes, said the keeper eagerly. Well, said Syme, if he's that particular kind of old gentleman, if you're quite sure that he's a large and fat old gentleman in grey clothes, you may take my word for it that the elephant has not run away with him. He has run away with the elephant. The elephant is not made by God that could run away with him if he did not consent to the elopement. And by thunder, there he is. There was no doubt about it this time. Lean across the space of grass, about two hundred yards away, with a crowd screaming and scampering vainly at his heels, with a huge gray elephant at an awful stride, with his trunk thrown out as rigid as a ship's bowsprit and trumpeting like the trumpet of doom. On the back of the bellowing and plunging animal sat President Sunday, with all the placidity of a sultan, but goading the animal to a furious speed with some sharp object in his hand. "'Stop him!' screamed the populace. "'He'll be out of the gate!' "'Stop a landslide!' said the keeper. "'He is out of the gate!' And even as he spoke, a final crash and roar of terror announced that the great grey elephant had broken out of the gates of the zoological gardens and was careening down Albany Street like a new and swift sort of omnibus. "'Great Lord!' cried Bull. "'I never knew an elephant could go so fast. "'Well, it must be handsome cabs again if we were to keep him in sight.' As they raced along to the gate out of which the elephant had vanished, Syme felt a glaring panorama of the strange animals in the cages which they passed. Afterwards he thought it queer that he should have seen them so clearly. He remembered especially seeing pelicans with their preposterous pendant throats. He wondered why the pelican was the symbol of charity, except it was that it wanted a good deal of charity to admire a pelican. He remembered a hornbill, which was simply a huge yellow beak with a small bird tied on behind it. The whole gave him a sensation, the vividness of which he could not explain, that nature was always making quite mysterious jokes. Sunday had told him that they would understand him when they had understood the stars. He wondered whether even the archangels understood the hornbill. The six unhappy detectives flung themselves into cabs and followed the elephant, sharing the terror which he spread through the long stretch of the streets. This time Sunday did not turn round, but offered them the solid stretch of his unconscious back, which maddened them, if possible, more than his previous mockeries. 
Just before they came to Baker Street, however, he was seen to throw something far up into the air, as a boy does a ball meaning to catch it again. But at their rate of racing it fell far behind, just by the cab containing Gogol, and in faint hope of a clue or for some impulse unexplainable, he stopped his cab so as to pick it up. It was addressed to himself and was quite a bulky parcel. On examination, however, its bulk was found to consist of thirty-three pieces of paper of no value wrapped one round the other. When the last covering was torn away it reduced itself to a small slip of paper on which was written, The word, I fancy, should be pink. The man once known as Gogol said nothing, but the movements of his hands and feet were like those of a man urging a horse to renewed efforts. Through street after street, through district after district, went the prodigy of the flying elephant, calling crowds to every window and driving the traffic left and right, and still through all this insane publicity the three cabs toiled after it until they came to be regarded as part of a procession, and perhaps the advertisement of a circus. They went at such a rate that distances were shortened beyond belief, and Syme saw the Albert Hall in Kensington when he thought that he was still in Paddington. The animal's place was even more fast and free through the empty aristocratic streets of South Kensington, and he finally headed towards that part of the skyline where the enormous wheel of Earl's Court stood up in the sky. The wheel grew larger and larger till it filled heaven like the wheel of stars. The beast outstripped the cabs. They lost him round several corners, and when they came to one of the gates of the Earl's Court exhibition, they found themselves finally blocked. In front of them was an enormous crowd. In the midst of it was an enormous elephant, heaving and shuddering, as such shapeless creatures do. But the President had disappeared. "'Where has he gone to?' asked Syme, slipping to the ground. "'Gentlemen rushed into the exhibition, sir,' said an official in a dazed manner. Then he added in an injured voice, "'Funny gentleman, sir, asked me to hold his horse and gave me this.' He held out with distaste a piece of folded paper addressed to the secretary of the Central Anarchist Council. The secretary, raging, rent it open, and found written inside it, "'When the herring runs a mile, let the secretary smile. When the herring tries to fly, let the secretary die.' Rustic proverb. "'Why, the eternal crikey!' began the secretary. "'Did you let the man in? Do people commonly come to your exhibition riding on mad elephants? Do—' "'Look!' shouted Syme suddenly. "'Look over there!' "'Look at what?' asked the secretary savagely. "'Look at the captive balloon!' said Syme, and pointed in a frenzy. "'Why the blazes should I look at a captive balloon?' demanded the secretary. "'What is there queer about a captive balloon?' "'Nothing,' said Syme, "'except that it isn't captive.' They all turned their eyes to where the balloon swung and swelled above the exhibition on a string, like a child's balloon. A second afterwards the string came into just under the car, and the balloon, broken loose, floated away with the freedom of a soap bubble. Ten thousand devils!' shrieked the secretary. "'He's got into it!' and he shook his fists at the sky. The balloon, borne by some chance wind, came right above them, and they could see the great white head of the President peering over the side and looking benevolently down on them. "'God bless my soul,' said the professor, with the elderly manner that he could never disconnect from his bleached beard and parchment face. "'God bless my soul, I seem to fancy that something fell on the top of my hat.' He put up a trembling hand and took from that shelf a piece of twisted paper, which he opened absently, only to find it inscribed with a true lover's knot and the words, "'Your beauty has not left me indifferent from little snowdrop.' There was a short silence, and then Syme said, biting his beard, "'I'm not beaten yet.' 
The blasted thing must come down somewhere. Let's follow it. End of chapter 13「Chapter Fourteen of the Man Who Was Thursday. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Zachary Brewster Geis, Greenbelt, Maryland, June 2007. The Man Who Was Thursday, A Nightmare, by G. K. Chesterton. Chapter 14 the six philosophers across green fields and breaking through blooming hedges toiled six draggled detectives about five miles out of london the optimist of the party had at first proposed that they should follow the balloon across south england in hansom cabs but he was ultimately convinced of the persistent refusal of the balloon to follow the roads and the still more persistent refusal of the cabmen to follow the balloon consequently the tireless though exasperated travellers broke through black thickets and ploughed through ploughed fields till each was turned into a figure too outrageous to be mistaken for a tramp. Those green hills of Surrey saw the final collapse and tragedy of the admirable light grey suit in which Syme had set out from Saffron Park. His silk hat was broken over his nose by a swinging bough, his coat-tails were torn to the shoulder by arresting thorns, the clay of England was splashed up to his collar but he still carried his yellow beard forward with a silent and furious determination, and his eyes were still fixed on that floating ball of gas which in the full flush of sunset seemed colored like a sunset cloud. "'After all,' he said, "'it is very beautiful.' "'It is singularly and strangely beautiful,' said the professor. "'I wish the beastly gas-bag would burst.' "'No,' said Dr. Bull, "'I hope it won't.' It might hurt the old boy. Hurt him, said the vindictive professor. Hurt him? Not as much as I'd hurt him if I could get up with him, little snowdrop. I don't want him hurt somehow, said Dr. Bull. What? cried the secretary bitterly. Do you believe all that tale about his being our man in the dark room? Sunday would say he was anybody. I don't know whether I believe it or not, said Dr. Bull. But it isn't that that I mean. I can't wish old Sunday's balloon to burst because— Well, said Syme impatiently, because— Well, because he's so jolly like a balloon himself, said Dr. Bull desperately. I don't understand a word of all that idea of his being the same man who gave us all our blue cards. It seems to make everything nonsense. But I don't care who knows it. I always had a sympathy for old Sunday himself, wicked as he was, just as if he was a great bouncing baby— how can I explain what my queer sympathy was? It didn't prevent my fighting him like hell. Shall I make it clear if I say that I liked him because he was so fat? You will not, said the secretary. I've got it now. It was because he was so fat and so light, just like a balloon. We always think of fat people as heavy, but he could have danced against a sylph. I see now what I mean. Moderate strength is shown in violence. Supreme strength is shown in levity. It was like the old speculations. What would happen if an elephant could leap up in the sky like a grasshopper? Our elephant, said Syme, looking upwards, has leapt into the sky like a grasshopper. And somehow, concluded Bull, that's why I can't help liking old Sunday. No, it's not an admiration of force or any silly thing like that. There is a kind of gaiety in the thing, as if he were bursting with some good news. 
Haven't you sometimes felt it on a spring day? You know nature plays tricks, but somehow that day proves they are good-natured tricks. I have never read the Bible myself, but that part they laugh at is literal truth. Why leap ye, ye high hills? The hills do leap, at least they try to. Why do I like Sunday? How can I tell you? Because he's such a bounder. There was a long silence, and then the secretary said in a curious, strained voice, "'You do not know Sunday at all. Perhaps it is because you are better than I, and do not know hell. I was a fierce fellow, and a trifle morbid from the first. The man who sits in darkness, and who chose us all, chose me because I had all the crazy look of a conspirator, because my smile went crooked, and my eyes were gloomy even when I smiled.' But there must have been something in me that answered to the nerves in all these anarchic men, for when I first saw Sunday he expressed to me not your airy vitality, but something both gross and sad in the nature of things. I found him smoking in a twilight room, a room with brown blind down, infinitely more depressing than the genial darkness in which our master lives. He sat there on a bench, a huge heap of a man, dark and out of shape, he listened to all my words without speaking or even stirring. I poured out my most passionate appeals and asked my most eloquent questions. Then after a long silence the thing began to shake, and I thought it was shaken by some secret malady. It shook like a loathsome and living jelly. It reminded me of everything I had ever read about the base bodies that are the origin of life, the deep-sea lumps and protoplasm. It seemed like the final form of matter, the most shapeless and the most shameful. I could only tell myself from its shudderings that it was something at least that such a monster could be miserable. And then it broke upon me that the bestial mountain was shaking with a lonely laughter, and the laughter was at me. Do you ask me to forgive him that? It is no small thing to be laughed at by something at once lower and stronger than oneself. "'Surely you fellows are exaggerating wildly,' cut in the clear voice of Inspector Ratcliffe. "'President Sunday is a terrible fellow for one's intellect, but he is not such a Barnum's freak physically as you make out. He received me in an ordinary office, in a grey check coat, in broad daylight. He talked to me in an ordinary way. But I'll tell you what is a trifle creepy about Sunday. His room is neat, his clothes are neat, everything seems in order, but he's absent-minded. Sometimes his great bright eyes go quite blind.' For hours he forgets that you are there. Now absent-mindedness is a bit too awful in a bad man. We think of a wicked man as vigilant. We can't think of a wicked man who is honestly and sincerely dreamy, because we daren't think of a wicked man alone with himself. An absent-minded man means a good-natured man. It means a man who, if he happens to see you, will apologize. But how will you bear an absent-minded man who, if he happens to see you, will kill you? That is what tries the nerves abstraction combined with cruelty. Men have felt it sometimes when they went through wild forests, and felt that the animals there were at once innocent and pitiless. They might ignore or slay. How would you like to pass ten mortal hours in a parlour with an absent-minded tiger? "'And what do you think of Sunday, Gogol?' asked Syme. "'I don't think of Sunday on principle,' said Gogol simply, "'any more than I stare at the sun at noonday.' "'Well, that is a point of view,' said Syme thoughtfully. "'What do you say, Professor?' The Professor was walking with bent head and trailing stick, and he did not answer at all. "'Wake up, Professor,' said Syme genially. "'Tell us what you think of Sunday.' 
The professor spoke at last very slowly. "'I think something,' he said, "'that I cannot say clearly. Or rather, I think something that I cannot even think clearly. But it is something like this. My early life, as you know, was a bit too large and loose. Well, when I saw Sunday's face, I thought it was too large. Everybody does. But I also thought it was too loose. The face was so big that one couldn't focus it or make it a face at all. The eye was so far away from the nose that it wasn't an eye. The mouth was so much by itself that one had to think of it by itself. The whole thing is too hard to explain. He paused for a little, still trailing his stick, and then went on. But put it this way. Walking up a road at night, I have seen a lamp and a lighted window and a cloud make together a most complete and unmistakable face. If anyone in heaven has that face, I shall know him again. Yet when I walked a little farther, I found that there was no face, that the window was ten yards away, the lamp ten hundred yards, the cloud beyond the world. Well, Sunday's face escaped me. It ran away to right and left, as such chance pictures run away, and so his face has made me somehow doubt whether there are any faces. I don't know whether your face, Bull, is a face or a combination in perspective. Perhaps one black disc of your beastly glasses is quite close, and another fifty miles away. Oh, the doubts of a materialist are not worth a dump. Sunday has taught me the last and the worst doubts, the doubts of a spiritualist. I am a Buddhist, I suppose, and Buddhism is not a creed, it is a doubt. My poor dear bull, I do not believe that you really have a face. I have not faith enough to believe in matter. Syme's eyes were still fixed upon the errant orb, which, reddened in the evening light, looked like some rosier and more innocent world. "'Have you noticed an odd thing,' he said, "'about all your descriptions? Each man of you finds Sunday quite different, yet each man of you can only find one thing to compare him to—the universe itself. Bull finds him like the earth in spring, Gogol like the sun at noonday, the secretaries reminded of the shapeless protoplasm, and the inspector of the carelessness of virgin forests. The professor says he is like a changing landscape. This is queer, but it is queerer still that I also have had my odd notion about the president, and I also find that I think of Sunday as I think of the whole world. "'Get on a little faster, Syme,' said Bull. "'Never mind the balloon.' "'When I first saw Sunday,' said Syme slowly, "'I only saw his back.' And when I saw his back, I knew he was the worst man in the world. His neck and shoulders were brutal like those of some apish god. His head had a stoop that was hardly human, like the stoop of an ox. In fact, I had at once the revolting fancy that this was not a man at all, but a beast dressed up in men's clothes. "'Get on,' said Dr. Bull. And then the queer thing happened. I had seen his back from the street as he sat in the balcony. Then I entered the hotel, and coming round the other side of him saw his face in the sunlight. His face frightened me, as it did everyone, but not because it was brutal, not because it was evil. On the contrary, it frightened me because it was so beautiful, because it was so good. "'Syme!' exclaimed the secretary. "'Are you ill?' It was like the face of some ancient archangel judging justly after heroic wars. 
There was laughter in the eyes and in the mouth honour and sorrow. There was the same white hair, the same great grey-clad shoulders that I had seen from behind. But when I saw him from behind, I was certain he was an animal. And when I saw him in front, I knew he was a god. Pan, said the professor dreamily, was a god and an animal. Then and again and always, went on Syme like a man talking to himself, that has been for me the mystery of Sunday, and it is also the mystery of the world. When I see the horrible back, I am sure the noble face is but a mask. When I see the face but for an instant, I know the back is only a jest. Bad is so bad that we cannot but think good an accident. Good is so good that we feel certain that evil could be explained. But the whole came to a kind of crest yesterday when I raced Sunday for the cab and was just behind him all the way. "'Had you time for thinking, then?' asked Ratcliffe. "'Time,' replied Syme, for one outrageous thought. I was suddenly possessed with the idea that the blind, blank back of his head really was his face, an awful, eyeless face staring at me. And I fancied that the figure running in front of me was really a figure running backwards and dancing as he ran. "'Horrible,' said Dr. Bull, and shuddered. "'Horrible is not the word,' said Syme. "'It was exactly the worst instant of my life. "'And yet ten minutes afterwards, "'when he put his head out of the cab "'and made a grimace like a gargoyle, "'I knew that he was only like a father "'playing hide-and-seek with his children.' "'It is a long game,' said the secretary, "'and frowned at his broken boots. "'Listen to me,' cried Syme with extraordinary emphasis. "'Shall I tell you the secret of the whole world?' It is that we have only known the back of the world. We see everything from behind, and it looks brutal. That is not a tree, but the back of a tree. That is not a cloud, but the back of a cloud. Can you not see that everything is stooping and hiding a face? If we could only get round in front— "'Look!' cried out Bull clamorously. "'The balloon is coming down!' There was no need to cry out to Syme, who had never taken his eyes off it. He saw the great luminous globe suddenly stagger in the sky, right itself, and then sink slowly behind the trees like a setting sun. The man called Gogol, who had hardly spoken through all their weary travels, suddenly threw up his hands like a lost spirit. "'He is dead!' he cried. "'And now I know he was my friend, my friend in the dark!' "'Dead!' snorted the secretary. "'You will not find him dead easily.' If he has been tipped out of the car, we shall find him rolling as a colt rolls in a field, kicking his legs for fun. Clashing his hoofs, said the professor. The colts do, and so did Pan. Pan again, said Dr. Bull irritably. You seem to think Pan is everything. So he is, said the professor. In Greek, he means everything. Don't forget, said the secretary, looking down, that he also means panic. Syme had stood without hearing any of the exclamations. "'It fell over there,' he said shortly. "'Let us follow it.' Then he added, with an indescribable gesture, "'Oh, if he has cheated us all by getting killed, it would be like one of his larks.' He strode off towards the distant trees with a new energy, his rags and ribbons fluttering in the wind. The others followed him in a more footsore and dubious manner. And almost at the same moment all six men realized that they were not alone in the little field. Across the square of turf a tall man was advancing towards them, leaning on a strange long staff like a scepter. 
He was clad in a fine but old-fashioned suit with knee-breeches. Its color was that shade between blue, violet, and gray, which can be seen in certain shadows of the woodland. His hair was whitish-gray, and at the first glance, taken along with his knee-breeches, looked as if it was powdered. His advance was very quiet, but for the silver frost upon his head he might have been one to the shadows of the wood. "'Gentlemen,' he said, "'my master has a carriage waiting for you in the road just by.' "'Who is your master?' asked Syme, standing quite still. "'I was told you knew his name,' said the man respectfully. There was a silence, and then the secretary said, "'Where is this carriage?' "'It has been waiting only a few moments,' said the stranger. "'My master has only just come home.' Syme looked left and right upon the patch of green field in which he found himself. The hedges were ordinary hedges— the trees seemed ordinary trees, yet he felt like a man entrapped in fairyland. He looked the mysterious ambassador up and down, but he could discover nothing except that the man's coat was the exact color of the purple shadows, and that the man's face was the exact color of the red and brown and golden sky. "'Show us the place,' Syme said briefly, and without a word the man in the violet coat turned his back and walked towards a gap in the hedge which let in suddenly the light of a white road." As the six wanderers broke out upon the thoroughfare, they saw the white road blocked by what looked like a long row of carriages, such a row of carriages as might close the approach to some house in Park Lane. Along the side of these carriages stood a rank of splendid servants, all dressed in the grey-blue uniform, and all having a certain quality of stateliness and freedom, which would not commonly belong to the servants of a gentleman, but rather to the officials and ambassadors of a great king. There were no less than six carriages waiting, one for each of the tattered and miserable band. All the attendants, as if in court dress, wore swords, and as each man crawled into his carriage they drew them and saluted with a sudden blaze of steel. "'What can it all mean?' asked Bull of Syme as they separated. "'Is this another joke of Sunday's?' "'I don't know,' said Syme as he sank wearily back in the cushions of his carriage. "'But if it is, it's one of the jokes you talk about. It's a good-natured one.' The six adventurers had passed through many adventures, but not one had carried them so utterly off their feet as this last adventure of comfort. They had all become inured to things going roughly, but things suddenly going smoothly swamped them. They could not even feebly imagine what the carriages were. It was enough for them to know that they were carriages, and carriages with cushions. They could not conceive who the old man was who had led them, but it was quite enough that he had certainly led them to the carriages. Syme drove through a drifting darkness of trees in utter abandonment. It was typical of him that while he had carried his bearded chin forward fiercely so long as anything could be done, when the whole business was taken out of his hands, he fell back on the cushions in a frank collapse. Very gradually and very vaguely he realized into what rich roads the carriage was carrying him. He saw that they passed the stone gates of what might have been a park, that they began gradually to climb a hill which, while wooded on both sides, was somewhat more orderly than a forest. Then there began to grow upon him, as upon a man slowly waking from a healthy sleep, a pleasure in everything. He felt that the hedges were what hedges should be, living walls, that a hedge is like a human army, disciplined, but all the more alive. He saw high elms behind the hedges, and vaguely thought how happy boys would be climbing there. Then his carriage took a turn of the path, and he saw suddenly and quietly, like a long low sunset cloud, a long low house, 
mellow in the mild light of sunset. All the six friends compared notes afterwards and quarrelled, but they all agreed that in some unaccountable way the place reminded them of their boyhood. It was either this elm-top or that crooked path, it was either this scrap of orchard or that shape of a window, but each man of them declared that he could remember this place before he could remember his mother. When the carriages eventually rolled up to a large, low, cavernous gateway, another man in the same uniform, but wearing a silver star on the grey breast of his coat, came out to meet them. This impressive person said to the bewildered Syme, "'Refreshments are provided for you in your room.' Syme, under the influence of the same mesmeric sleep of amazement, went up the large oaken stairs after the respectful attendant. He entered a splendid suite of apartments that seemed to be designed specially for him. He walked up to a long mirror with the ordinary instinct of his class, to pull his tie straight or to smooth his hair, and there he saw the frightful figure that he was, blood running down his face from where the bow had struck him, his hair standing out like yellow rags of rank grass, his clothes torn into long wavering tatters. At once the whole enigma sprang up, simply as the question of how he had got there and how he was to get out again. Exactly at the same moment a man in blue, who had been appointed as his valet, said very solemnly, "'I've put out your clothes, sir.' "'Clothes?' said Syme sardonically. "'I have no clothes except these!' And he lifted two long strips of his frock-coat and fascinating festoons, and made a movement as if to twirl, like a ballet girl. "'My master asks me to say,' said the attendant, "'that there is a fancy dress-ball to-night, and that he desires you to put on the costume that I have laid out. Meanwhile, sir, there is a bottle of burgundy and some cold pheasant, which he hopes you will not refuse, as it is some hours before supper. "'Cold pheasant is a good thing,' said Syme reflectively, "'and burgundy is a spanking good thing. But really I do not want either of them so much as I want to know what the devil all this means, and what sort of costume you have got laid out for me. Where is it?' The servant lifted off a kind of ottoman, a long peacock-blue drapery, rather of the nature of a domino, on the front of which was emblazoned a large golden sun, and which was splashed here and there with flaming stars and crescents. "'You are to be dressed as Thursday, sir,' said the valet somewhat affably. "'Dressed as Thursday,' said Simon Meditation. "'It doesn't sound a warm costume.' "'Oh, yes, sir,' said the other eagerly. The Thursday costume is quite warm, sir. It fastens up to the chin. "'Well, I don't understand anything,' said Syme, sighing. "'I have been used so long to uncomfortable adventures that comfortable adventures knock me out. Still, I may be allowed to ask why I should be particularly like Thursday, in a green frock, spotted all over with the sun and the moon. Those orbs, I think, shine on other days. I once saw the moon on Tuesday, I remember.' "'Beg pardon, sir,' said the valet. "'Bible also provided for you.' And with a respectful and rigid finger he pointed out a passage in the first chapter of Genesis. Syme read it, wondering. It was that in which the fourth day of the week is associated with the creation of the sun and moon. Here, however, they reckoned from a Christian Sunday. "'This is getting wilder and wilder,' said Syme, as he sat down in a chair. Who are these people who provide cold pheasant and burgundy and green clothes and Bibles? Do they provide everything? Yes, sir, everything, said the attendant gravely. Shall I help you on with your costume? 
"'Oh, hitch the bolly thing on,' said Syme impatiently. But though he affected to despise the mummery, he felt a curious freedom and naturalness in his movements as the blue and gold garment fell about him, and when he found that he had to wear a sword, it stirred a boyish dream. As he passed out of the room he flung the folds across his shoulder with a gesture. His sword stood out at an angle, and he had all the swagger of a troubadour, for these disguises did not disguise, but reveal. End of chapter 14Chapter 15 of The Man Who Was Thursday. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Zachary Brewster Geis, Greenbelt, Maryland, June 2007. The Man Who Was Thursday, A Nightmare, by G. K. Chesterton. Chapter 15 The Accuser. As Syme strode along the corridor he saw the secretary standing at the top of a great flight of stairs. The man had never looked so noble. He was draped in a long robe of starless black, down the center of which fell a band or broad stripe of pure white like a single shaft of light. The whole looked like some very severe ecclesiastical vestment. There was no need for Syme to search his memory or the Bible in order to remember that the first day of creation marked the mere creation of light out of darkness. The vestment itself would alone have suggested the symbol, and Syme felt also how perfectly this pattern of pure white and black expressed the soul of the pale and austere secretary, with his inhuman veracity and his cold frenzy, which made him so easily make war on the anarchists, and yet so easily pass for one of them. Syme was scarcely surprised to notice that, amid all the ease and hospitality of their new surroundings this man's eyes were still stern no smell of ale or orchards could make the secretary cease to ask a reasonable question if syme had been able to see himself he would have realized that he too seemed to be for the first time himself and no one else for if the secretary stood for that philosopher who loves the original and formless light syme was a type of the poet who seeks always to make the light in special shapes, to split it up into sun and star. The philosopher may sometimes love the infinite, the poet always loves the finite. For him the great moment is not the creation of light, but the creation of the sun and moon. As they descended the broad stairs together they overtook Ratcliffe, who was clad in spring green like a huntsman, and the pattern upon whose garment was a green tangle of trees for he stood for that third day on which the earth and green things were made, and his square, sensible face, with its not unfriendly cynicism, seemed appropriate enough to it. They were led out of another broad and low gateway into a very large old English garden, full of torches and bonfires, by the broken light of which a vast carnival of people were dancing in motley dress. Syme seemed to see every shape in nature imitated in some crazy costume, there was a man dressed as a windmill with enormous sails, a man dressed as an elephant, a man dressed as a balloon. The two last together seemed to keep the thread of their farcical adventures. Syme even saw with a queer thrill one dancer dressed like an enormous hornbill with a beak twice as big as himself. The queer bird which had fixed itself on his fancy like a living question while he was rushing down the long road at the zoological gardens. 
There were a thousand other such subjects, however. There was a dancing lamp-post, a dancing apple-tree, a dancing ship. One would have thought that the untamable tune of some mad musician had set all the common objects of field and street dancing like an eternal jig. And long afterwards, when Syme was middle-aged and at rest, he could never see one of those particular objects, a lamp-post, or an apple-tree, or a windmill, without thinking that it was a strayed reveller from that revel of masquerade. On one side of this lawn, alive with dancers, was a sort of green bank like the terrace in such old-fashioned gardens. Along this, in a kind of crescent, stood seven great chairs, the thrones of the seven days. Gogol and Dr. Bull were already in their seats. The professor was just mounting to his. Gogol, or Tuesday, had his simplicity well symbolized by a dress designed upon the division of the waters, a dress that separated upon his forehead and fell to his feet, gray and silver like a sheet of rain. The professor, whose day was that on which the birds and fishes, the ruder forms of life, were created, had a dress of dim purple, over which sprawled goggle-eyed fishes and outrageous tropical birds, the union in him of unfathomable fancy and of doubt. Dr. Bull, the last day of creation, wore a coat covered with heraldic animals in red and gold, and on his crest a man rampant. He lay back in his chair with a broad smile, the picture of an optimist in his element. One by one the wanderers ascended to the bank and sat in their strange seats. As each of them sat down, a roar of enthusiasm rose from the carnival, such as that with which crowds receive kings. Cups were clashed, and torches shaken, and feathered hats flung in the air. The men for whom these thrones were reserved were men crowned with some extraordinary laurels. But the central chair was empty. Syme was on the left hand of it, and the secretary on the right. The secretary looked across the empty throne at Syme, and said, compressing his lips, "'We do not know yet that he is not dead in a field.' Almost as Syme heard the words, he saw on the sea of human faces in front of him a frightful and beautiful alteration, as if heaven had opened behind his head. But Sunday had only passed silently along the front like a shadow, and had sat in the central seat. He was draped plainly in a pure and terrible white, and his hair was like a silver flame on his forehead. For a long time, it seemed for hours, that huge masquerade of mankind swayed and stamped in front of them to marching and exultant music. Every couple dancing seemed a separate romance. It might be a fairy dancing with a pillar-box, or a peasant girl dancing with the moon. But in each case it was somehow as absurd as Alice in Wonderland, yet as grave and kind as a love-story. At last, however, the thick crowd began to thin itself. Couples strolled away into the garden walks or began to drift towards that end of the building where stood smoking, in huge pots like fish-kettles, some hot and scented mixtures of old ale or wine. Above all these, upon a sort of black framework on the roof of the house, roared in its iron basket a gigantic bonfire, which lit up the land for miles. It flung the homely effect of firelight over the face of vast forests of grey or brown, and it seemed to fill with warmth even the emptiness of upper night. Yet this also, after a time, was allowed to grow fainter. The dim groups gathered more and more round the great cauldrons, or passed, laughing and clattering, into the inner passages of that ancient house. Soon there were only some ten loiterers in the garden, soon only four. 
Finally the last stray merrymaker ran into the house whooping to his companions. The fire faded, and the slow, strong stars came out. And the seven strange men were left alone, like seven stone statues on their chairs of stone. Not one of them had spoken a word. They seemed in no haste to do so, but heard in silence the hum of insects and the distant song of one bird. Then Sunday spoke, but so dreamily that he might have been continuing a conversation rather than beginning one. "'We will eat and drink later,' he said. "'Let us remain together a little, we who have loved each other so sadly and have fought so long. I seem to remember only centuries of heroic war in which you were always heroes, epic on epic, Iliad on Iliad, and you always brothers in arms, whether it was but recently, for time is nothing, or at the beginning of the world, I sent you out to war. I sat in the darkness where there is not any created thing, and to you I was only a voice commanding valor and an unnatural virtue. You heard the voice in the dark, and you never heard it again. The sun in heaven denied it, the earth and sky denied it, all human wisdom denied it, and when I met you in the daylight, I denied it myself. Syme stirred sharply in his seat, but otherwise there was silence, and the incomprehensible went on. But you were men. You did not forget your secret honor, though the whole cosmos turned an engine of torture to tear it out of you. I knew how near you were to hell. I know how you, Thursday, crossed swords with King Satan, and how you, Wednesday, named me in the hour without hope. There was complete silence in the starlit garden, and then the black-browed secretary, implacable, turned in his chair toward Sunday and said in a harsh voice, Who and what are you? I am the Sabbath said the other without moving. I am the peace of God. The secretary started up and stood crushing his costly robe in his hand. I know what you mean, he cried, and it is exactly that that I cannot forgive you. I know you are contentment, optimism, what do they call the thing, an ultimate reconciliation. Well, I am not reconciled. If you were the man in the dark room, why were you also Sunday, an offense to the sunlight? If you were from the first our father and our friend, why were you also our greatest enemy? We wept, we fled in terror, the iron entered into our souls, and you are the peace of God? Oh, I can forgive God his anger, though it destroyed nations, but I cannot forgive him his peace. Sunday answered not a word but very slowly he turned his face of stone upon Syme, as if asking a question. No, said Syme, I do not feel fierce like that. I am grateful to you, not only for wine and hospitality here, but for many a fine scamper and free fight. But I should like to know. My soul and heart are as happy and quiet here as this old garden, but my reason is still crying out. I should like to know. Sunday looked at Ratcliffe, whose clear voice said, "'It seems so silly that you should have been on both sides and fought yourself.' Bull said, "'I understand nothing. 
but I am happy. In fact, I am going to sleep. I am not happy, said the professor, with his head in his hands, because I do not understand. You let me stray a little too near to hell. And then Gogol said, with the absolute simplicity of a child, I wish I knew why I was hurt so much. Still Sunday said nothing, but only sat with his mighty chin upon his hand and gazed at the distance. Then at last he said, I have heard your complaints in order, and here, I think, comes another to complain, and we will hear him also. The falling fire in the great cresset threw a last long gleam like a bar of burning gold across the dim grass. Against this fiery band was outlined in utter black the advancing legs of a black-clad figure. He seemed to have a fine close suit with knee-breeches such as that which was worn by the servants of the house, only that it was not blue but of this absolute sable. He had, like the servants, a kind of sword by his side. It was only when he had come quite close to the crescent of the seven and flung up his face to look at them that Syme saw, with thunderstruck clearness, that the face was the broad, almost ape-like face of his old friend Gregory, with its rank red hair and its insulting smile. "'Gregory!' gasped Syme, half rising from his seat. "'Why, this is the real anarchist!' "'Yes,' said Gregory, with a great and dangerous restraint. "'I am the real anarchist.' "'Now there was a day,' murmured Bull, who seemed really to have fallen asleep, when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them. "'You are right,' said Gregory, and gazed all round. "'I am a destroyer. I would destroy the world if I could.' A sense of pathos far under the earth stirred up in Syme, and he spoke brokenly and without sequence. "'Oh, most unhappy man!' he cried. Try to be happy. You have red hair like your sister. My red hair, like red flames, shall burn up the world, said Gregory. I thought I hated everything more than common men can hate anything, but I find that I do not hate everything so much as I hate you. I never hated you, said Syme very sadly. Then out of this unintelligible creature the last thunders broke. You! he cried. You never hated, because you never lived. I know what you are of all of you from first to last. You are the people in power. You are the police, the great, fat, smiling men in blue and buttons. You are the law, and you have never been broken. But is there a free soul alive that does not long to break you, only because you have never been broken? We in revolt talk all kind of nonsense, doubtless, about this crime, or that crime of the government. It is all folly. The only crime of the government is that it governs. The unpardonable sin of the supreme power is that it is supreme. I do not curse you for being cruel. I do not curse you, though I might, for being kind. I curse you for being safe. You sit in your chairs of stone and have never come down from them. You are the seven angels of heaven, and you have had no troubles— Oh, I could forgive you everything, you that rule all mankind, if I could feel for once that you had suffered for one hour a real agony such as I. Syme sprang to his feet, shaking from head to foot. 
"'I see everything,' he cried, "'everything that there is. "'Why does each thing on the earth war against each other thing? "'Why does each small thing in the world have to fight against the world itself? "'Why does a fly have to fight the whole universe? "'Why does a dandelion have to fight the whole universe? "'For the same reason that I had to be alone in the dreadful council of the days, "'so that each thing that obeys law may have the glory and isolation of the anarchist.' so that each man fighting for order may be as brave and good a man as the dynamiter, so that the real lie of Satan may be flung back in the face of this blasphemer, so that by tears and torture we may earn the right to say to this man, You lie! No agonies can be too great to buy the right to say to this accuser, We also have suffered. It is not true that we have never been broken. We have been broken upon the wheel. It is not true that we have never descended from these thrones. We have descended into hell. We were complaining of unforgettable miseries, even at the very moment when this man entered insolently to accuse us of happiness. I repel the slander. We have not been happy. I can answer for every one of the great guards of law whom he has accused. At least— He had turned his eyes so as to see suddenly the great face of Sunday, which wore a strange smile. Have you— he cried in a dreadful voice. Have you ever suffered? As he gazed, the great face grew to an awful size, grew larger than the colossal mask of Memnon which had made him scream as a child. It grew larger and larger, filling the whole sky. Then everything went black. Only in the blackness before it entirely destroyed his brain, he seemed to hear a distant voice saying a commonplace text that he had heard somewhere. Can ye drink of the cup that I drink of? When men in books awake from a vision, they commonly find themselves in some place in which they might have fallen asleep. They yawn in a chair, or lift themselves with bruised limbs from a field. Syme's experience was something much more psychologically strange, if there was indeed anything unreal, in the earthly sense, about the things he had gone through. For while he could always remember afterwards that he had swooned before the face of Sunday, he could not remember having ever come to at all. He could only remember that gradually and naturally he knew that he was and had been walking along a country lane with an easy and conversational companion. That companion had been a part of his recent drama. It was the red-haired poet Gregory. They were walking like old friends and were in the middle of a conversation about some triviality but Syme could only feel an unnatural buoyancy in his body and a crystal simplicity in his mind that seemed to be superior to everything that he said or did. He felt he was in possession of some impossible good news which made every other thing a triviality, but an adorable triviality. Dawn was breaking over everything in colors at once clear and timid, as if nature made a first attempt at yellow and a first attempt at rose. A breeze blew so clean and sweet that one could not think that it blew from the sky. It blew rather through some hole in the sky. Syme felt a simple surprise when he saw rising all round him on both sides of the road the red irregular buildings of Saffron Park. He had no idea that he had walked so near London. He walked by instinct along one white road, on which early birds hopped and sang, and found himself outside a fenced garden. There he saw the sister of Gregory, the girl with the gold-red hair, cutting lilac before breakfast, with the great unconscious gravity of a girl. End of chapter 15
End of the book, The Man Who Was Thursday, A Nightmare, by G. K. Chesterton.